0: Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now on to the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. For those that have been listening to the show for a while, we're going to turn the tables on you because here's the deal. Roby Cotcamp is going to be
2: on the mic
1: interviewing Chris Osmond. They're going to be discussing something. I'm not sure yet, so Roby, what are we talking about today?
2: Yeah, thanks, Eric. Good morning, good afternoon. Great to be here. So some things have happened here of late in the market, which are not unknown to people. Uh, So with all the kind of gyrations that we've seen in the market this year, we've seen a lot of questions from clients about, hey, what are we doing to manage risk? What does that mean for our portfolios? We thought it'd be pretty useful to kind of do a segment on how Centura thinks about risk both from an academic and a practical standpoint, and what that means for portfolio actions for clients. So I'm super excited. I'm here today with Chris Osmond, our Chief Investment Officer. And uh, since he and I are maybe considered two of the more nerdy people in the firm, we get to talk about this. So uh, good morning, Chris.
3: Good morning, Roby. Eric, thank you for having me. Real excited to unpack a lot of those topics
2: today, Roby. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, so before we jump in, Chris is the chief investment officer for the firm. So he is clearly the smarter of the two of us this morning. So before we jump in, Chris, just tell us a little bit about your background, uh, education, experience, kind of what led you to become chief investment officer at Centura.
3: Yeah, no, I don't know about necessarily the smartest, but I will say I'm probably (laughs) rank up there in the nerdiest uh, within the firm. (laughs) (laughs) Known what I've wanted to do since I was a kid unique in that way, knew I wanted to manage investments, forged that path ever since high school, taking college level courses, Uh, went to college in my undergrad at University of Arizona, down in Tucson, bear down, go Wildcats. And then since then, I've spent the last 18-ish years in investment management. So managing custom portfolios for high net worth individuals, Foundations, institutions, endowments, uh, a lot of different types of trusts. And before joining Centura, I was chief investment officer of a RIA based in Kansas City. Managed a little over $17.5 billion when I exited that firm. And in addition to that experience, I do have a few initials behind my name. Uh, a CFA, so I'm a chartered financial analyst. A kaya so a chartered alternative investment analyst. Think CFA for alts and a certified financial planner, CFP.
2: Fantastic. Yeah, so uh, since I'll probably opine on one or two things today, I'll give a very brief background on myself, so very brief. So I'm, I happen to be a, a, a CFP, and so I spend most of my time actually talking with clients and helping them think through comprehensive wealth plans. By education, I got my undergraduate degree from Purdue and management, master's degree from Northwestern University with a focus in economics and finance. So, uh, so I know a little bit about this stuff and, uh, looking forward just to having this chat today. But let's jump into this thing. I, w- I want to set the stage a little bit as to why we want to have this discussion today. And the reason is that we as a firm, I think, see that the world has changed really in the last 12 months. And so, by way of a quick history review if you think about 2009 to really halfway through 2021 investing seemed pretty simple the fed was continually continually lowering lowering interest rates they were adding adding liquidity to the economy every time there was a hint of a problem inflation was very low below 2% and really the way to invest in that period was simply by the dip every time the market dipped the fed would come to the rescue And as an investor, you just said, well, I'm just going to put my money in a passive portfolio and buy the dips and things should work out really well. And they did. And so that was a smart way to invest in that period. But the world has substantially changed really in the last 12 months. And here's really what's changed. And this is something everybody's aware of. Inflation has reared its ugly head. We thought we had killed it off in the late 70s and early 80s. What we learned is that you cannot print money forever and spend money forever and not at some point pay the price for that. So we now have an entrenched, entrenched inflation rate that's in the eight to nine percent range. And the Fed has had to completely reverse course. So now they're in the process of rapidly raising interest rates. At the same time, they're skinnying down their balance sheet. So what that means effectively is that rather than going into the market and buying. Credit securities. They're actually pushing those securities back into the market. And that has the effect of withdrawing liquidity from the economy. Here's the point of all this. If you think about what drove the market increase from 2009 to 2021, it was the Fed injecting liquidity into the economy. That was the number one reason by far. There isn't a close second. So if that is what happened in an environment where we were injecting liquidity, what do we think is going to happen when we pull liquidity out? And the answer is that the market's going to struggle. Equities in general are going to struggle. Bonds in general are going to struggle. And so this becomes much more important to get actively involved in the management of portfolios. And that's where we want to talk today. So so Chris, let me kind of start this off and just say, okay, so we're in this riskier environment that I just described. Talk a little bit about how Centura thinks about risk and how that translates into kind of, you know, our view of we want to try to minimize risk while increasing returns. So just how do we think about that generally?
3: Yeah, and great, great summary, Roby, really good backdrop. And when you think about risk, it's really hard not to also talk about return right? The two go hand in hand. And when you're talking about risk and return, it's also hard not to talk about portfolio construction. So I want to start by framing my response to how Centura views risk and how we can capitalize or take advantage or position portfolios based off the market environment around certain risks. I want to, again, start with framing around the portfolio construction process. And really the ultimate goal of constructing a portfolio is to allocate funds to various investments in a manner that achieves the maximum level of return for a given level of risk. Sometimes you may hear a position, conversely, where it's minimizing risk for a given level of return, but ultimately it's the same goal, portfolio optimization. Now, we look at several principles that help guide our decision-making process, but at the end of the day, it really boils down to four primary simple yet profound time-tested principles of investing. Those are portfolio optimization, institutional asset allocation, utilizing alternative investments, tax efficiency and asset allocation optimization, and market efficiency optimization. Out of respect for time today, I won't dig deep into each of those principles I just mentioned. Rather, you know, just outline if done correctly, it drives us to the appropriate risk reward combination for an individual client. Now that I've framed from a portfolio construction standpoint, I want to address the risk topic. Now, Ruby, I've sat across, across the table from many clients throughout my career, and I immediately want to go to what seems like the industry standard is. And that's, I want to get into and geek out around standard deviation, sharp ratio, trainer, sortino, you know, and every time I do, clients just glaze over. And ultimately, it's because we aren't putting risk in the context of clients and what's important to them. You know, we're addressing our pain points from a portfolio construction standpoint in terms of the you know, standard deviation, but we're not addressing risk from a client standpoint. And I think that's really where Centura takes a different approach.
2: And that's yeah, so I, I just want to resonate there like that absolutely my experience with clients is that look you, clearly it's important that they know that we know these measures of risk, but ultimately it's what how do we translate that into something that's meaningful to clients and we really do something different there where we try to help focus clients around the cash flow question. So maybe maybe talk about that for a minute. What are we doing there that's different and important for our clients?
3: Yeah, so many of our clients through the planning process, right? They're they're selling business, they're executives earning high levels of income, and they're stepping into a retirement where that income's gone, right? So how do we replace that income? That's that's one uh, solution. The other is when we talk to a lot of our wealthiest clients and ask them, how, what is the number one variable that makes you feel wealthy? Resoundingly, the answer is excess cash flow it's the excess cash flow that gives them that peace of mind to live the lifestyle that they ultimately want to take care of their family let's let's face it you know i know as a child growing up it was the trips that i enjoyed and i remember the most versus the gifts so how can you enhance your lifestyle to excess excess cash flow how do you create a a philanthropic or legacy giving program it's through that excess cash flow and so we try to frame the risk of the risk of falling short of that excess cash flow. So how can we deliver on that to in a way that client understands, right? And it means something to them because without that excess cash flow, it really starts to dig into their ability to meet objectives, meet goals, and live the lifestyle that they ultimately want.
2: Yeah, that that really struck me, Chris, that I think so many people in the industry want to talk about, well, what's the rate of return and let's talk about a lot of these really sophisticated measurements when at the end of the day, clients, what really matters to clients is understanding that they are going to have sufficient cash flow to live that elevated lifestyle that they hope to live, you know, both before retirement and after retirement. So that really, I think, is in, it's an important thing to really to get focused on here. So let's talk about, so how are we doing that exactly? And I, and I think I want to break this down maybe into a couple of sections, right? So we're clearly, we're doing some very different things at Centura to help meet those cash flow objectives. So let's break this down. I want to talk first of all about kind of what we're doing in, in public markets with both equity and fixed income, and then we'll turn our attention to some alternative investments. So let's just start there. What what have we been doing differently with both public equities and, and public fixed income investments that are making a difference in portfolios and maybe even talk about the difference that we've been able to realize in the first six, seven, eight months of this year?
3: Yeah, and uh, I'll start by responding that, Anytime we're looking to make a change to a portfolio, we are long-term investors. So we're always going to take that perspective when making changes. That doesn't mean we can't take the market environment today, as well as forward-looking perhaps over the next six to nine months, to incorporate some changes to either minimize drawdown, to take a more cautious approach, or even be opportunistic. With how we position portfolios, uh, you know, going back as early as March, April of 2020, where we could be a little more opportunistic, try position for growth. So we're always trying to take that mindset when making portfolio changes. So as we entered into 2022, you already mentioned a lot of the highlights there, Roby, with regards to what was taking place. We were changing regimes from a monetary policy perspective to easy money policy to tight money policy. I learned at a very young age of my career, uh, was fortunate enough to manage money through the great financial crisis. Though, looking back, I'm not sure I was so fortunate <laughs> given the, the sleepless nights, but I, I learned you don't fight the Fed, right? And coming into 2022, we wanted to take a cautious approach. Interest rates were toward, were near zero. So how do we combat rising interest rates? We go ultra short in duration or maturity to offset that risk of rising interest rates. And then additionally, we held additional, you know, held cash, understanding that yes, we may lose purchasing power due to the 40-year high inflation, but if you look back at 8 to 9 inflation sitting in cash over half a year, it's about 4% adjusted, right? Versus the Barclays Ag, which is down over 10% year to date. So, really, from a risk reward standpoint, holding above average levels of cash has been very productive to the portfolios. And then, on the fixed income side, as I mentioned, we went ultra short. We believe in active management in fixed income. You know, most people don't realize that the bond market is three times the size of the equity markets. And so that makes it it's such an inefficient asset class where active managers can really outperform the Barclays aggregate benchmark. Now, as you mentioned, post-financial crisis, it's been really hard. Bonds have been in a 40-year bull market up until recently. I mean, they've never experienced two negative returns back-to-back in, in two consecutive years, though if it were to end today, that's exactly what we'd have. Two negative returns on bond, two negative two consecutive negative returns on the Barclays aggregate. So through active management, well, yes, we're paying a little bit more for that because the ag is three basis points or 0.03 of 1%. And we're we're paying about 59 basis points or 0.59% on our fixed income allocation, but we're outperforming by 6% or 600 basis points. To me, yeah. that active management is worth it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that it's a great point, Chris, and it's one that I think a lot of people struggle with. And this, and part of this, is that why in the world would I pay for this management when all I need to do is, you know, every time the market dips, I buy. Well, that that world is absolutely changed now for the reasons we've described. And so, if you can pay an additional fifty basis points to potentially yield an additional six hundred basis points. That becomes pretty compelling, and so that's. Uh, I think you've clearly demonstrated that. So, so that's really great. So that's so on the what I'll call the public side of our investment portfolio. That's what we've been doing there, and, and absolutely, when we've been having discussions with clients, the discussions are along the lines of: Look, nobody's escaped pain this year, but on a comparative basis, our clients really have performed. They've outperformed the market, so sort of call it the average 60/40 investor by several hundred basis points because of these changes that got made. Doesn't mean we're happy about where we're at, but it does mean that uh, the changes we made really had substantial positive impact. So let's let's add to the mix now, kind of what we're doing on the alternative investment front, and I think it's important that that folks here why we're starting to blend a number of alternative investments into portfolios and seeing that as a really critical part of everyone's asset allocation strategy. So let's break it down into what I think are sort of three primary pieces around real estate, around private equity, and around private credit. So let's just talk in general about why we're looking at alternatives, what we expect to see there generally. And then let's start talking in, in specifically about private real estate and what we're doing there and the results we're seeing.
3: Right. And it all goes back to how I started the conversation with regards to risk and return. And that goes to the portfolio construction process and trying to optimize the portfolios to deliver a, to maximize the return for a given level of risk. And really, that is accomplished through the utilization of alternative investments. We at a Centura believe in taking a much more institutional approach to our asset allocation, which means on average, we could have a client that has an allocation to alternatives of 30 to 40%. And to your point, we're predominantly allocating them across private real estate, private equity, and private credit. When we look at the private real estate aspect, we going back post financial crisis, really from two thousand eleven on, it's been just like the passive index uh, ETF S and P five hundred. It's been really hard not to do, deliver solid results, right? Twenty plus IRRs. Really, where we want to focus on in real estate, or what are those asset classes that are not recession proof? Because there's no such thing as a silver bullet, but more recession resilient. So we really spent a lot of time trying to identify sectors in the market that have a significant supply to demand disconnect or a gap, if you will. And multifamily real estate is one of those exact examples. We're facing a housing crisis where there is a significant shortage of housing. And then you factor that with the unaffordability of housing right now, which we're now beyond 20-year highs on the back of rising interest rates, which the 10-year treasury and mortgage rates are very highly correlated. So we've seen the 30-year mortgage increase over 2% while home prices are rising at over 20% year over year. So all that spells home unaffordability, but it also creates a very positive backdrop for private real estate, especially multifamily private real estate. I will say though, however, it's a little bit different whereby I mentioned returns our expectations for returns have definitely come down. So now when we're underwriting real estate, we're not expecting 20 plus percent IRR. It's more, we want to take advantage of the inflationary hedge that real estate provides, right? So it's naturally going to increase and offset inflation. So you keep that purchasing power, but also it's perhaps one of the most tax efficient investments out there, whereby the income produced is often tax-free or tax-deferred. So we're able to receive a very solid tax-efficient income stream while our principal is offset by inflation. So we, we find that highly attractive from a risk-reward standpoint.
2: Yeah, yeah that's true. And, and, and certainly, again, as we're having conversations with clients here this year, when they're seeing that tax-efficient cash flow that just keeps showing up quarter after quarter after quarter, it definitely resonates and, uh, and it's absolutely creating some really nice ballast for the portfolio. So it's a great way to, to manage risk as well as frankly, uh, maybe fine, even though the returns are going to be potentially be muted over the next five years, they may still be one of the most attractive asset classes that we see over the next five years. So great to, uh, to hear about that. Let's talk a little bit about private equity. So really sort of the same questions. How are we thinking about private equity? And one thing that comes up often that I'd, I'd love it if you would touch on is this idea that private equity is somehow riskier than public equity. And that's why there's a premium when, you know, there's sort of this expectation that you're going to get a higher return on private equity. My sense is that that may not actually be what's driving that return, maybe something more along the lines of the, that, that. Look, this thing is going to get locked up for a while and take a while to pay off. So talk about what we're doing in private equity arena and why we view risk maybe a little differently there than some folks think about risk in private equity.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. Great points. And at the end of the day, equity is equity. The main differences is some are private, some are public. And you hit the nail on the head, Roby, in that some of the opportunity for superior risk adjusted returns within private equity are due to that illiquidity premium, whereby it sometimes takes longer time in the private markets to extract value. And therefore, you get this premium because it's illiquid. Also, factoring into that illiquidity premium is investors don't have the ability to buy and sell over the market. Like So, for instance, they can't just go buy and sell Apple with a private company where in the public, that's that's not the case. So for that inability, they expect to get a premium as well. We find private equity to be an extremely inefficient market. And you look no further than the subset and, and the, the opportunity. I mean, it wasn't long ago when the Wilshire 5000 meant 5,000 companies. Now you're looking at less than 4,000 companies in the Wilshire 5000, whereby there's over 80,000 private companies Also, look at when we start looking at larger companies and that opportunity set, and let's look at just the U.S. companies that generate over $100 million of annual revenue. 15% are public. That means 85% are private. That is a significant opportunity to find value and extract that through investment in private equity. And additionally, I would add that there's also significant misalignment of interests among publicly traded executives and private, uh, privately held executives. Whereby publicly traded executives are really just trying to deliver shareholder value, where we have found private uh, company executives tend to be more focused on profit and growth, which ultimately leads to again that that uh, a higher market premium. Uh, it just takes sometimes longer to extract that value.
2: Yeah, well, that really, that, it, it's kind of extraordinary to think about that, you know, you're talking about like a 20 to one ratio of private companies to public companies, and that really is a sea change. It used to, the game used to be 20, 25 years ago that companies would want to rush to an initial public offering, and now companies are waiting much longer until they reach a greater level of maturity, that their products are clearly going to work in the market. They're, they tend to be profitable companies often before they even go to market now. And so that 20 to 1 hunting ground makes that private equity space so much more attractive to to look for opportunities for, as as you described, outsized returns. So that's really a great understanding of that space. So let's, let's turn our attention to one final piece that we're looking at, and that's private credit. And so I'm thinking about that broadly. So first of all, just talk about what are we doing right now in terms of looking at opportunities in that space? What does it really mean, private credit? And then I want to kind of talk about a secondary topic, structured notes that sort of fit in there, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So talk about what we're doing in private credit.
3: Yeah. You, as I mentioned with private equity versus public market equity, equity is equity, right? Same thing with credit. The main difference is public versus private. So when we look at private credit, we are looking at loans to privately held companies that are not publicly traded right? There are a lot of benefits to private credit, which we've done podcasts on in the past, but to highlight really quick, interest rate, they are a great rising interest rate hedge because they tend to be shorter term bonds. They also tend to be floating rate bonds, which means as interest rates rise, the, they reset. So you don't have that same inverse relationship that you see in the public market traditional bonds whereby interest rates rise, the principal falls. So you get that. They're also an inflationary hedge, which maybe inflation's peak, maybe not. Truth of the matter is, inflation is going to be sticky. It's going to be a long time before we get back to that 2% target the, the, the Fed is looking to get to. So private credit can be a great hedge against inflationary pressures as well as rises in interest rates. Now, one thing with private credit, though, that makes it difficult Especially when you look at Centura and how we're trying to align the investments with the ultimate planning goals. And that's really around tax efficiency. A lot of private credit tends to be a little inefficient from a tax perspective because it's taxed as ordinary income. So we're really trying to find some private credit managers that can also offer some tax efficiency with regards to their income distribution. So we are currently exploring multiple private credit managers that we can ultimately offer within client portfolios.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that focus on it, as we talk about this all the time with clients, that we focus maybe more than any other firm out there on what are your net returns? What is the tax impact of what we're doing? And we want to make sure that at the end of the day, you're keeping most of the return on a post-tax basis so that That really is an important part of what we're doing in terms of identifying the right private credit provider. So uh, I would be remiss if we didn't at least spend 60 seconds and talk about kind of how we're filling the gap in the short term. And that's around structured notes and now we've done podcasts on that and I would point listeners to our website at www.centerwealth.com and look at our history of life liberated podcast and you'll find lots of information there on structured notes if you get interested but at least touch on that Chris kind of you know what are we doing there today you know just with a kind of a quick overview.
3: Yeah no we are tending to gear, uh, structured notes towards one of two formats. One is a growth note. So just think equity investment with a buffer, right? And oftentimes we're actually participating more than 100% on the upside with 20, 25% on the downside before any loss is even on the table. And then on the income side, particularly as it pertains to private credit to bridge the gap until we're able to on onboard private credit managers to our platform, we're looking at income-based structured notes. So when I say income-based, they're producing an income stream over the term of a note, just like a bond. However, the underlying investments they're linked to are equity. So we are linking these two equity markets with a very significant downside buffer, typically 25% or more. So in other words, as long as the index doesn't violate or blow through that 25% buffer over the term of the note, the client continues to pick up a very significant income stream, which over the last several months in this environment, we've been able to pick up anywhere from 8% to 12% over a 12 to 18 month note. So that's been a great income replacement as we identify private credit managers.
2: Right, and as you say, clearly these things are not without some element of risk, but we're putting that risk in the context of, well, what are the alternatives? And on a relative basis, we're seeing really nice income generation with what we deem to be a reasonable level of risk. So that's that's fantastic. I wanna point out one more thing I'll just talk about it really quickly. And that is one other thing, one other opportunity we provide to clients is we actually use a product for cash management that is called Index Universal Life. And so, again, we have podcasts on this. I'd encourage listeners to go look at those podcasts. But that has been a really, really important, what I will call a risk controller for our clients, for those that have chosen to subscribe to that over the last couple of years. Effectively, we're able to generate on average sort of mid single digit average returns inside of a life insurance product that provides a guarantee that the funds can never lose value and you have essentially full liquidity over the life of the product. There are no surrender fees, no sort of traps there. So you have liquidity within the product and you're able to do a lot of very nice things from a borrowing perspective that can be very, very attractive. Uh, and so that's one more piece that's just sort of added to the puzzle. So let me start to wrap this up, Chris, because, I mean, my gosh, you and I can go on about this forever. And sometimes we do jump on calls and do go on about this forever with just with each other because we because we love markets. But uh, so, so let's just wrap this up. Here's what I heard today is that clearly Centur is still focused on all the traditional measures of risk. But what we try to do is turn that into a more practical application, which is to say we absolutely care about minimizing risk. We absolutely care about maximizing returns. But fundamentally, we want to make sure that we create solid streams of cash flow for clients in any market environment such that they feel like I don't really care a lot about what markets are doing right now because money keeps showing up for me to afford the lifestyle that I want to lead. So is that a pretty good summarization of where we've gone today? And then would you add anything else to that as we start to wrap up?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's a very good summary, Roby. And I would only add that investing is about the long-term commitment and try not to make knee-jerk reactions, but maintain a flexible approach in the management of your portfolio and that it's times like this that we're in today, these tough environments that we're also expected to continue to experience where the handholding of active management, like we at Centura provide is extremely beneficial for clients. And then lastly, I know I mentioned it once, but just remain cautious uh, in this
2: environment and don't fight the Fed. Yeah. Well said, that's uh, that's a truism that uh, will hold true forever, I think. So let me add just one more thing is that, and I will wrap up here. So as you have listened to this today, whether you're an existing client or somebody that uh, thinks, hey, maybe I'd like to talk more with Centura. We hope this conversation around risk, both from an academic and practical standpoint have been helpful to you. I just wanna remind folks really who we serve. And so Centura is a firm, we serve clients across the spectrum. But the place where we really provide the greatest impact is in talking with folks that have high incomes, typically above a million dollars a year, because we can make a big impact from an income tax planning perspective there. Folks that have money in motion in their lives, selling a business, selling a piece of real estate, going through a death or divorce, and people that have wealth transfer issues, which usually means you're going to be facing an estate tax, which is not a terribly large number these days, and it's getting smaller under current tax law. So we would encourage you to give us a call and and we would love to have the opportunity to show you what clients in your situation are doing. And and we're confident that we can provide you with a host of strategies that will really be attractive to help you minimize your tax bill and optimize your balance sheet and really help you to experience this kind of confidence around your long term wealth and your legacy. So let me just wrap up by saying this. Please reach out uh, to us in any means that you choose to. You can find us on the web at www.centurawealth.com encourage you to look at back episodes of the Life Liberated podcast, look at our liberated wealth process, get to know our team. And uh, you can also reach us via toll-free number, 858 771 Appreciate you being with us here today, Chris. Really enjoyed this. And uh, thank you, to Ruby. the listening audience.
1: This has been fantastic, gentlemen. Roby, thank you so much for giving the contact information. I think that's so vitally important for those listeners that want to reach out. And I'd encourage them to reach out. I've been on this journey with you and your entire team for a very long time. And it's just a wealth of information. Chris, I love that last point. Don't fight the Fed. That's, uh, that's <laughs> something that people need to perk their ears up and listen to heartily at, at, at the least. So guys, thank you so much for doing what you do. Thank you for the podcast today. And of course, our last thank you goes to you the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when the team comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review as this does help other people find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do
2: not achieve the same results.